Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a real pleasure and corrects a long overdue oversight, a glaring omission, Aaron, from the <laughs> from the Great Minds canon. And that is uh, one of my best buddies in the business. I love him to death. Um, he is smart. He's charming. He's got an incredible work ethic. Uh, and uh, every time I'm with him, it's just an absolute joy. So a heartfelt welcome to my old pal, Aaron Reitkoff. Welcome, Aaron. Mr. Schechner, just a huge shout out. I think we know each other too well to have figured out we needed to do this a long time ago. Such an absolute pleasure. I have... Uh... I've waited a long time. Episode two hundred ninety-six. I'm ready for it. All right, uh, <laughs> all, all right, big boy. So, Aaron, one one of the great joys of uh, doing Great Minds is we get to talk about people and companies that might otherwise be lost in history, or certainly talked to and spoken about only very infrequently. This is one of those opportunities. Going back uh, to early days. I'd love to get your remembrances of it might have been your first gig or certainly one of your first yeah, yeah, yeah. working for McCaffrey and McCall way back oh, when Bruce McCall. Jeez, that's right. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so could we wow. start that? Could we start there? What a neat thing. Yeah. Thank you for that, Matt. That does, that, that is, that is the first job actually. That is literally, I was a, uh, 20-year-old who was working on Wall Street for Drexel Bohm Lambert, another company that doesn't exist anymore for a good reason, um, but um, was working for them and decided I was going to go back to uh, school. I was going to go to Columbia, and I'd gotten into an accelerated program for a PhD in English literature, and I was bored, and I literally was just commenting to my father that I was bored, and he mentioned, Ralph Cohn works in advertising. You should talk to him for a minute until school starts. Maybe he can get you to do something. I walk into the agency and a guy named Lynn Davis, who actually ran research, research was a thing, they had a library, and, um, and uh, he uh, said, we have a training program. And they hired me that, that day and put me into their training program. I was supposed to go to college maybe three or four months, I think, later to Columbia. And I walked into this thing that was like, um, do you know like Dada Art? Dada Art is like the art movement that I always simplify by saying art is whatever the hell I say it is. And I'm right because it's my art and I can say it's art. Okay. It's just mine. Well, soup cans art, you know, Warhol, all this stuff. I couldn't believe this industry existed with these people walking into rooms and saying, yeah, spend $30 million on this idea I have. And why? Because we're right. And we're experts. No other thing. It was completely Dada to me and I loved it. And so I jumped into it. And obviously you're mentioning McCaffrey and McCall, you know, for a specific reason. And it was, it, it was at its height of being a great shop at that point. It was doing stuff like Mercedes Benz, those incredible, like long copy ads. You probably remember from a million years ago and stuff. They're just like incredible brand building activities. But what happened to the, the agency is what happened to lots of things in the business, Matt, which is the, uh, the response marketing side of the business began to get quite big because the general agency brought in things, they added capabilities, but the money began to be manufactured over here in like response marketing. And in the end, the response marketing people took over the entity and that kind of ended, I think, the run of that entity because they weren't the reason people were coming to the entity itself. They were a result of coming to the entity, not the primary reason. The money kind of killed the creativity there, but it was a fabulous shop. And it was, uh, it, was a good, it was a good place to start off in the business and get to learn everything. I started as a traffic coordinator, a thing that does not exist anymore. 
And now you reference the training program, which is something that uh, was a big thing. You know, Leo Burnett years ago uh-huh. had a vaunted training program. Talk about that. What it Lin- did- Lintas? Remember Lintas? Lintas yeah, sure. Exists really, but Lintas is now many iterations on, like Lieber International Advertising Services, Lintas, old entity from IPG. But that, that entity had Lintas University, where like forget about the training program that trained the juniors. When you were like when you were seniorish or mid-level seniorish, you were like sent to another city in the University of Chicago, ran a piece of programming. It was in Detroit because we had lots of car clients, and it was like to this day, I think I, to this day I have Lintas University T-shirt and I keep it on itself. Like it was meaningful. It was the first time someone tried to add skills to me rather than me just figuring it out myself. I thought the basic training programs, which don't exist anymore, those were great because they just they basically made you work in different departments and understand you're inside this much more complicated thing and that it works in this really interesting way and all these different pieces have to come together. But I think the thing that really went away in the business was there used to be, and there still are a few people trying to do it again, like real executive training programs to help skill us up more and bring in like real business professors because our clients have MBAs. Our clients are generally more educated a lot of times than people in quote unquote traditional advertising are. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's a real loss. And, and I'd love to dig in a little deeper here because I think it's such an interesting, not often discussed subject. But yeah. talk about what it did for you and talk about what young people today are losing out on with the disappearance of most of these programs. It's so interesting. So like the, um, I'll tell you exactly what it did inside me. And it's kind of going to be a little bit of a weird answer maybe, Matt, but um, it built inside me some rules of how I was going to actually run my career. Cause I had been kind of being blunt. Like I was large and in charge guy, uh, you know, run a podcast where people could see me. I'm just physically a very large person. I'd go in rooms. They call me big friends and I'd run businesses. And over time, everyone just let me kind of run the place a little bit, but getting me more skilled up, you know, it was not really happening. So once I, I got to experience like extremely interesting, like the program I was in, I'm talking now it's Lintas. So it's gotta be 25 years ago. It was describing exactly what just happened with machine learning, personalized marketing. Everything's about to be available. They were actually describing that way back then. And I then got curious about that rule that was coming. And so then I created a new rule for myself personally called the 90-day rule, which is that every 90 days, I have to learn something like deeply new and meaningful. And if I don't, then I have to remedy it in 30 days at the place I'm working or whatever I'm doing. And if I can't remedy that, I should quit and move on and do something else because I'm not like learning something new every quarter. So then I, I use that as a program with all my people. I would basically say you have to plus one every 90 days. And if you don't, it's probably our fault, but if it's your fault, we'll get rid of you. Um, because if you're not trying to learn and grow and, but you know, being candid, like the only way I've seen to be able to recreate these programs now, Matt, and I'll, I'll end it here, but like, I have seen some interesting things where people are using new platforms to be able to take the institutional knowledge inside the organization and access it way better. Like there's a thing I'm watching being used, it's called Beehive, but it doesn't matter. There's other things like this. But basically it's like a it's like the gamification of knowledge and mentoring inside of your company. And everyone's ranked as to how much they're either answering Quora kind of style questions. Like people can ask Quora questions and rate the answers. You can tag people based on their specialisms and ask questions of different groups to learn things. But then you can request mentoring in different subjects and you have to be mentoring all the time. It's just interesting seeing things that are like modern versions that could be used to build training programs that don't get into that, like we can't afford it problem that everyone just got rid of training. Um, And now there's this huge problem, right? We're like this murky middle that's about to get destroyed by, you know, AI and machine learning. Like who's going to 
how are they going to learn to go from juniors to, to seniors? Like there's a lot of training need and a lot of effort. I think that has to happen next. Yeah. It seems like there's a confluence of things sort of conspiring against the next generation of, of young people who are going to be leading so our business. So. You know, so. the absence of a training program, like what you the want. Absence of an office to hang out in for five days a week. That's and work right. Football, you know, work late at night and drink beers and do all the stupid things we do. Exactly. Door number two, the absence of being around other people. And then door number three, you know, the onset of AI and machine learning. And it seems like almost an imperfect, beginning to be an imperfect yeah. storm. Uh, yeah. And I think, you, ha you know, you have to be worried about uh, about that next generation, the 20s and 30s, um, well, and how they're, they're going to learn. I, well, I think, I think what's happening almost like a little, like, so haven't you noticed that everyone's kind of questioning this generation a lot? Like, they're putting it on them a lot. Like, you know, well, like, why do they work that way? Why are they so, like, like, you know, why do they come up to me after they did all the work and say, like, I finished it. Can I go home now? It's three o'clock in the afternoon. That seems like a ludicrous question to you or I. But to them, it makes perfect sense. Like, I did what you asked me. I did my work. I'm going to go home now. Like, that that transactional nature of the job, I think, is a result of how, like, we've treated these guys a little bit. You know, I mean, like, yeah. everyone's blaming them a bunch. But I don't know. I think the world they grew up in would make me feel very transactional about my office. It doesn't invest in me very much. It fires me whenever it wants to. Talent is highly fungible. Like, why wouldn't I treat you like you're also transactional a little bit within the confines of not getting fired? You know, like, push it to the limit a little bit. I, I don't think that's a winning recipe for anybody because all the surveys we're looking at, I think this is the one you saw maybe, Matt, in the New York Times editorial like nine days ago or something, 10 days ago. It was a really nice piece. It was just showing that like nobody's happy. <laughs> like the, employer, right. the employers aren't happy. The employees aren't happy. Nobody's in a better place. Like this is not working right now, like this whole situation. And that's before, to your point, the third thing hits because we have not seen the impact yet. Like agencies are not using AI and machine learning, like generative AI, yet at the level that they all will be in the next like 12 months, they have no choice. Like, it's all right. coming. Fascinating. It's, it's, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. I, I wish I had like, a, I wish I had a, um, if I have a, if I have a response to it, Matt, because we did just lay out the problem, but not really a response to it. Like it would be like, if I'm in my 20, my 30s, just to your first original thought of what we're talking about here is like get the skills skill up force your place to skill you up if not leave your place and get skills yeah don't and, see a transactional just see the skills acquisition between your 20s and your 30s you're just trying to acquire skills and experiences and you should stop worrying about how much money you're getting paid yeah, and just and, get skills and experiences and go and go to work well yeah go to work you have to go to work yeah my, my son started a job as like a business transformation consultant and he'll hate me for talking about him but um but it's okay. <laughs> the, the, he, he, um, he, after working for like nine months, suddenly called up and said, you won't believe it. They, they, they expect me to go to the client's offices for like, like two days a week. And I was like, that's great news. And he's like, no, it's a tragedy. And then like, after he was there for like three weeks, he called me up. And he's like, you won't believe this conversation I had over coffee, like with this person that he runs the whole thing who confided this thing and like just changed his whole perspective on what he's actually doing for a living and the roles they have and everything. Like, there's a thing that you just don't know until you've gone in and done it. Like this is a super smart young man who just didn't know until he went into an office environment that his job was half as hard if he was around the same people and talking and, and just doing the stuff that's we're used to it, but they've never experienced it. It was new to him. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like the default way that people think of, of all ages today. And I just got a note about, can you be in Boston next? I think it's next Friday. Uh, and I just wrote back, yes. Yeah. 
you know, and, and I, uh, you know, will always go the extra mile, especially a place like that, that, you know, in relative terms is very easy to get to. Easy to get to. Um, but it's you, a Friday, but yeah, you cannot, <laughs> you cannot replace, you know, the no. value of that in person. Um, well, it's happening. I mean, the, the, I don't know what you're hearing that, but like, I am hearing kind of like the, um, the way people are trying to solve this problem in the kind of like large scale leadership world is, um, you know, just requiring everybody to be in the office three days a week, no matter what. And before it was like an ask, and now it's not an ask anymore. And so people will start getting fired if they don't show up during these periods of time. It's just what's going to happen next. But I, I actually, at first I was like not loving the way it was all being managed, but I think it's a, a necessary thing to do. I think it benefits the employees. Actually. Yeah, I think there's varying amounts of leverage that uh, certain sectors and certain companies within those sectors have. You know, it seems like the Wall Street firms, the banks, you're in five days a week, buddy, and that's it. Doesn't uh, matter. You, it, can, you can do whatever you want, but you can't work here. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it doesn't yeah. seem like, you know, everyone has that leverage. No, no one else has that kind of leverage. It's, it's the, the extra two zeros in, in those salaries or extra zero in that salary yeah. just makes that a different different. And I think those people tend to think that they're running at a, at a prize that they're going to get to in some form, whereas everyone else is kind of working in a career a bit, you know? Yeah, a little different. <laughs> All right, so let's roll along. So you have a cup of coffee as a group account director at another small shop, and then you go where we met to KBS, Kirschenbaum Bond at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Pre-Lori, uh, you were there with the founders, Richie and John, uh, and had a great, great run there, a little over a decade, as I recall. Yeah, super fun. Talk about the road to getting uh, to work with uh, Richie, who I, you know, and John and Richie and I continue to be good friends. But I'd, lo I'd love to hear that origin story, how you got there. And you rose up pretty high up and you're still pretty young at that time. Yeah, yeah it was super unusual for me. It was kind of like, remember before when I was sitting I, I, I was commenting, it's like, get skilled up. I made this decision once I realized that the industry was like fascinating and interesting. I also realized that everyone behaves like they're flotsam and jetsam, just floating around waiting for a phone call. It didn't make any sense to me. Whereas I felt like learn all the categories, learn how all the tools work, get integrated in that experience, and then go to an independent shop and help them achieve like some kind of an event maybe or happen. That was kind of the goal with joining uh, KBP and KBS and uh, now those Brendan Porters have become many things over the years. But joining that entity initially was really a very specific goal of they're an integrated shop using then like guerrilla marketing, some very disruptive techniques. And they were their brand was bigger than their business was. Their brand was quite big, but their business was quite small. And there was this wonderful, it was John Bond and Richard Kirschenbaum, but there was also Rosemary Ryan, who cannot be underestimated there in in that that whole experience and rosemary um but i walked in and met with john and richard i think the reason i joined the company was um i was in a conversation with with the founders of the company and after the conversation was over i was leaving like walking across the lobby and i suddenly thought they were doing something wrong and something they said the way they ran new business and i asked to go back in the room and i walked in and i said i don't think you're doing that thing your, your whole like growth thing isn't right i would do it this way instead and they picked the phone up and they called the guy that ran the whole growth department and said, hey, hold on a second. Talk to this guy and handed me the phone. They're like, tell the, tell the guy what you said. Right. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, tell the guy. I'm like, OK, I'm like, here's what you should do instead. He's like, great. He takes the phone. He goes, hey, yeah, that's what we're going to do from now on. Do it that way. And he hung the phone up. And I was like, did you just take my suggestion and pivot your whole new business operation off what I just said to you? He's like, yeah, yeah, it's a better idea. And I was like, no committees? Like, there's not like a, 
a process that takes three months for us to go and change the things. I was so used to large agencies. I'd never seen like truly entrepreneurial spirit like that that was able to be in control and pivot when it wanted to. And then they just assembled. Like the hiring policy there was really the odder or more interesting or different people were, the more you should look at them. And, and particularly creatives, like hire all kinds of object objects and put them all together and see what comes out of them. And during that period of time, there were some incredible things that came out, out of that place. It was a uh, really unique time. And then um, Rosemary, unfortunately, left to go to JWT because she wanted to, to just go show the world because it was such a bigger platform to what she was doing. And then I got to jump into the CEO job. And then we actually sold off on a very successful um, earn out. But I was sub 40 to your point. And suddenly I was like, wait a second, I'm not yes. done. I'm still married. I'm happily married. My wife's so nice. She doesn't want to buy stuff. So like money isn't the driver anymore. And that's when I realized that 90 day rule kind of kicked in Matt. And I was like, okay, like I got to go ahead to the new again. And I got lucky and got to jump into the digital transformation after the sale was over and go into that whole world of like building brands through digital experiences, not through right. communications. Left, left all that behind for about 15 years. We're going to come back to that and to Dale and Profero and all that because I, I, oh, I love those folks. But let's stay let's stay with Kirshenbaum Bond for a while because yeah. there was a moment in time. There were certain shops that, you know, had a moment in time. Crispin Porter Bogusky had a moment. Yeah, yeah. You know, Kirshenbaum Bond had a moment in time. Oh, Talk yeah. about what made that place as special as it was and a real great farm system for, for talent. Incredible number of alumni who have gone on to accomplish great things. There's this incredible thing called Beekman 1802, which is this lovely beauty brand, skin brand, like a crazy great brand. Um, and uh, it's a big, big business out there. It was actually built by just one of the creatives who was inside of um of Christian Bell Bond part. But to explain how like special that period of time was and how it actually worked would be like um like that creative director was this like fabulous secret drag queen who was just so interesting, but he's he's just the most genius person. Now he's got this incredible business he's built beyond. Like it's probably, I don't know, probably a billion dollar business at the stage, maybe. But you know, there was there, there's him, then there was uh Andy and Kate Spade were there, you know, like Andy was, was writing for us. And then there was all these people. And at some point you'd find yourself like in a target store in New Jersey. And you'd realize like, you just made the whole store color blocks. Like imagine taking an entire store and color blocking it, but imagine not having any idea how you can put the store back together again. Right. Like you're just not concerned about that part. We, we got hired and fired, I think in the same first date. And then Later on, we came out, out to, to Minneapolis and sat down with Park Corporation to give you like a live example. And I, I was the guy in the room for this one. And I got to walk in the room and the work was done by a lovely man named Joel Berlander. But I'll give Josh Kilmer Purcell a lot of a lot of credit, James Hitchcock a lot of credit, just incredible. So many creators, so much credit. But but the work was basically a giant bullseye, red. And underneath it, it just said, Psst. And then little bitty mouse type, it just said, like, if you recognize this symbol, you've been our guest before. We're opening up in the tri-state area. We have a special event happening in Menlo Park, New Jersey. Call an 800 number to try to get access to this thing. We're opening 140,000 square foot, like, department, like a, you know, like a discount department store. And we're celebrating, like, it's a gallery offering, like, and we're not even putting a name on it. And the clients looked at it, and they thought we were out of our minds. Like, what is this? And we said, yeah, this is how you can open all your stores in the tri-state area. And Wall Street's going to reward you for it, and you're going to stop saying Target. That's the top three, the most iconic thing in the world. You're a bullseye. Stop that. And um, and they looked at us like, you know, like, who's going to tell the CEO we decided to do that? 
And I'm like, I will. <laughs> I'll tell him, can we go to his office now? You have a good relationship. Like maybe we can slip in between meetings for a minute or two and I'll offer to pay for all the advertising if it doesn't work. He said, what? I said, you're not going to go in the office unless I offer to do this for you. Like how many people do you need to show up the first day at the store? How many people? He's like, I need 2,000 people. I'm like, okay, if I hit 2,000, I'm good to go. If I don't, I pay for all the media. How's that for you? And he's like, you would do that. I'm like, yep, I will. Then I went to a CEO. It was Michael Francis back then. And he took the deal with me. And they did it. They ran the ad without the name on it the first time. And then many other agencies came in and took advantage of that great idea in a good way. They, they made, we were a big harem of people working together in a good, good positive way of like generating lots of different work. But um, when it came back to New York, I, I had to go and see John and Richard. And I had to tell him like, look, you'll be famous. Like I showed them the, the ads that were going to run, right? And they were like, yeah, I'm like, but I think you probably have your homes like against the loans and stuff for the, for the company. You might lose your home if it doesn't work. Just, you know, because like, it's a lot of media. They're going to spend behind this idea. <laughs> and then I, I knew I was in a good place because the guys were like, I remember they both looked at it and they said like, hey, like we're in it already, right? Let's go for it. I was like, let's go for it and see what happens. I love and that definitely worked out. Star is crazy. Star, uh, uh, but listen, you were willing, you believed in the idea. And, yeah, they were willing to back the play. And, and yeah. you sold it. Yeah, that was fun. It was really fun. That was a fun one. And no one had to sell the house. No one had to lose their house at the end. <laughs> Every, everybody got, it, they all got weekend homes out of it. Yeah, it turned Perfect. out great. All right. I'm glad we got to talk about uh, Kersher Mount Bond. Thank so, you so uh, then you move on to Prefero and uh, Dale, a great, great team. Uh, there, one of the earlier to digital shops. Yeah, you, yeah, you go, yeah. you go back, and you look at, you know, RGA. Of course, you look at Tribal yeah. DDB. I think Prefero oh, belongs on that list. Yeah, it's interesting. The um, it's not as well known because Prefero had grown up in Europe. Actually, it was like kind of like if you're in London, people know it more um, from the original days itself. And it was a digital network. It had grown up through all of Europe. Um, aggressive kind of thing. Like they'd be at dinner having a conversation and some Spanish executives would come over and say, we hear you talking about digital. We need digital in Spain. They'd be like, great, we'll fly back with you. Let's go do digital. And it was like, you know, the beginnings of digital where every client was just trying to figure out what to do about it. And and what they did, which was really weird, which was they basically expanded to Asia. They, they used the telephony. Like, remember how like, if you skipped over um, wired lines and went to, to sell, you could see much more digital expansion much quicker. So they actually did the opposite of most people. So the reason they aren't necessarily as renowned is because they pivoted into Asia and bought the second agency ever in China, right behind Sorrel. Sorrel paid, I, I can't remember how much it was, but it was way in excess of, of, a, of an eight-figure number for it, the first agency in China. We bought a postcard company in China, which gave us the license to operate as an advertising agency from a 72-year-old woman itself <laughs> for, I think, like cash, 10000 or something. That was really funny. But but basically, they, they expanded rapidly around the world. And I was then brought in to help build out North America and South America. And we simplified the model. They, they agreed to teach me digital transformation. I would teach them America um, and how different it is and how much it, it would be a different place to kind of work here. But our goal was, was always to wind up taking the entity and kind of racing to the wire of the moment we had the most value to be able to create a transaction for ourselves. So we were always determined to kind of create that. And it became three of us, to your point, Dale Gall, who's like the best, and he's sitting in London now having the best time probably at the RAC having lunch or something. And then Wayne um, was sitting in Singapore and I was sitting in New York and the three of us ran what became dozens and dozens of offices. And then 
we wound up having most of Unilever's more digital side of the business while IPG had the non-digital side of the business more. And that obviously created a real distinct need to buy us um, itself. And talk about Wayne and Dale, who were really two great, great figures. Uh, I don't need the after hour stuff, but uh, we've had them both <laughs> had them both on our stages many times. Oh, they got on before me. Jeez, there you go. <laughs> and uh, lo- love love those boys. Well, I'll do I'll do um, Wayne first because he was the first one I met, and um, so Wayne was actually not someone I met because I was interested in joining his company. Wayne was this annoying Englishman who was asking my old head of strategy for people to join his company. And I'd introduced a lot of people to them and he didn't like any of the senior people. I sent people from RGA, I sent people from all the good digital shops over to him just to be nice to her. And at some point he asked to meet me like for coffee, just to say like, you know, like maybe you could help me think differently, but I don't like anyone you sent over. And then he said, let's meet for lunch. Let's meet for drinks. Let's meet, let's meet. And after a while he just said, Hey, you don't really understand global digital transformation. You don't understand centers of excellence around the world. You don't understand a lot of stuff, but you do understand this marketplace. And I think you could help us. And I decided I'd throw in with him. And he was just the loveliest man. And then um, we just jumped into it together. And he came to New York and we just sat together in a teeny little office. He initially worked out of a mattress showroom of some sort. Like he had some friend in the business. This is crazy in the beginning. And then we built a proper office and got it going. And, um, he, uh, he then introduced me to Dale, his partner, and then Dale came to New York. Dale Gall had built many of the great agencies in London, was a, a great strategist by trade. Wayne was like a lawyer who just hated being a lawyer. And he was like in Hong Kong in his mid-20s. And someone uh, put a telex machine in the office that had Bloomberg on it. And he realized everything was going to be digital in the future. The Bloomberg thing just showed him that. And he quit work and just went back and started a digital agency. Dale was a guy with a head of strategy kind of role across many shops, had, had participated in uh, previous sale and then jumped into Perfero and um, he comes over to New York and they, you know, it, it was a big operation, but it was still like, you know, a very entrepreneurial expanding operation. We were popping offices just by hiring a managing director and going, we're open. Here we go. Let's just figure it out from there. And um, at some point we sat down in New York, Dale and I, my, my first month in the company. And he said, like, I said to him, like, Hey, like, so like, there's no real there there. Right. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, there's not really like a there, there. Like when I try to say like, we're this, it's hard for me to say what we are. Like we're many things, we're very successful, but like, where's the there? And he was really nice. He said to me like, hey mate, that's why we're here. We make the there. Let's go make a there together. And then we became really best friends after that. Like, you know, about as deep as you go. Yeah, really. And and, and the nicest feeling, if I miss anything, Matt, in my whole career of like a lovely things I've gotten to do is the feeling of working with two people that at some point we were just really deep friends with each other and we're pushing each other extremely hard to perform. Like we were extremely good at being aggressive with each other because we're such good friends and making great things happen. And not to uh, minimize, but you know, Prefero was the world's largest independent digital advertising agency. So that's quite a footprint. And then you are part of the team that, uh, ends up selling the agency to IPG, uh, becomes low Prefero and starts a long relationship with you and IPG. So let's talk about that. The the first, the first stages of it didn't work actually very well at all in that, um, it was low and, and partners and, and it was just a really like low wasn't, was really into K and not very strong at that stage. And, um, it actually took about a year to kind of work 
with the team at IPG and then they integrated Mullen into it. And then it became really interesting because you had Mullen and you had Media Hub. And then what we did was we integrated into that, which became kind of like the Mullen Low group and then the Mullen Low Prefero, Mullen Low Media Hub. And that whole enterprise, our first task was to take, we had, we had some, we had very sophisticated performance media operations around the world. And we had very sophisticated integrated search operations. And, you know, these were somewhat more advanced than like the average media shop would have been. So we just integrated ourselves into Media Hub to help them uh, increase their rate of success. They were already a really great organization moving forward. But after we integrated with them, and I don't give us the credit here, I give the, the team that really was running the place. Man, they just took off. It was so great to see. And I, I enjoyed that experience. I really enjoyed uh, the folks at Media Hub and, and the way that they work. And that they have a huge bias to ideas in media where there aren't enough ideas. And um, and after that, I, I got the opportunity to kind of help integrate into like Mullen Low and integrate digital you know, advertising uh, operations into them, content operations into them, and then um, take Prefero and just turn it into purely a, a, a competitor to um, what's called mid-sized digital transformation companies. Like, what does that mean? Global mid-sized. It just means people who can be picked instead of Accenture. There's very few of them in the world that are global enough to be able to help clients transform digitally. Um, you get you get picked because you are more nimble and uh, able to get work done faster than people like Accenture or Deloitte and, and EY. And I, I did that for, um, I, I then took that and kind of created a different kind of offering out of that. But, but um. I changed my role. I think after that, I can talk to that in a minute too. Actually, also once COVID hit, I saw a different opportunity into the market. All right, so we'll we'll get there, but let's let's go a little deeper here as well. So, on a couple of occasions, you've gone now between Kirschenbaum Bond and Profero, um, gone through two major acquisitions. One by what was then the MDC family, now uh, Stagwell, and a second uh, with IPG. Talk about that evolution and what worked out well and what didn't work out so well going from independent to part of a much larger machine. So many, so many, Matt, you have probably the greatest network of of people uh, in the business of anybody. And I think, you know, I have like a mini decent sized version of a network in the business also. And so many, but many people are always talking to me nowadays about like, like, hey, I could sell my thing for this much money now. Like, I've reached the point. There's, there's, there's money back in the world. Private equity is back in the world trying to figure out how to bet again. And um, so there's, there's lots of those kind of conversations going down. And it's funny you ask the question because I was, you know, having recent conversations on the subject. And someone asked me specifically that question. They said, like, how do you feel about those sales? Like, each one individually and then all together and stuff like that. And, and I'll speak to them individually in a second. But I'll say that as a macro. I think the consistent thing about both sales is if you had a chance to do it all over again, would you still sell it? And I think in both cases, I'm not sure I would. Um, even though they were very successful sales, like the earnouts were 380% growth on the KBS one, hitting like every kind of marker we needed. And we managed to get a, a timeline from IPG that was probably the shortest earnout ever done for something as complex as we were. It was so ridiculously short. So, so they were really successful. And each one of them, we, we beat every KPI, it turned out great, worked out really well. But if we had just continued forward on the trajectory that we had, we would have paid ourselves um, itself, I think, in the end. I think we just took, in the end, when you sell yourself, you're just taking numbers of years of service off the table. Um, in, in, in my world, like, cause we work in service, do you know what I mean? Like Matt, 
you build media properties and they, they have services attached to them, but, but it's a property itself. And most things we build are services. So the only way to exit a, a service business is really to think about it as like multiple years of business. Like every time we sold, I would just go, okay, my current earnings, this is 10 years off the table, or this is 15 years, or this, this equals 20 years of my life at this current earning. Like when you start in a service company, just think about it as like, if you just kept going and things didn't turn out too badly and you didn't grow that much or that little, how many years would it take for you to go make this money yourself? And I think in each case, the rate of growth in the, the marketplace would have said we would have probably made more if we didn't do it. Now, individually, the two different deals, you know, in the end, I tended to attach myself to founders. I don't tend to find, I don't found the thing. I tend to meet somebody that's founded something and then help it become much, much more valuable. Like I've had a pretty successful, always over two digit growth rates on things I do. I'm itself going year over year, even on like negative years, like I have a good year. So like that, that, um, that sale to um, MDC, that one's more of a unique situation and that MDC was having a lot of problems inside of MDC that later on kind of got revealed and that MDC changed, leadership had a change. So that experience was, was not good because of the holding company had a lot of issues as a holding company that later on turned up like SEC issues, all kinds of fun stuff for them. That wasn't great. The IPG experience was actually, it is a great experience. Like I, I have to say that, you know, the holding companies all have different reputations. And I think if IPG has a consistent reputation, it would be the word nice. Like it's a really nice place. Like I, I, everyone's really good people. And I, I like everyone, you know, brutally hard results driven, you know, you have to do all that stuff. Yeah, the, the differences between the two of them were that. I hope that answers your question. It was a great answer. And uh, and listen, that's a very difficult moment for a founder-led business. Um, you know, to some degree, over time, it, it becomes um, sort of almost an albatross that you can't get out from under. Uh, and on one hand, it's, it's not unlike being a parent, you know, it's a lifetime job parenting. There's no exit with a business. You can't, but it will never, it will never be the same. It's a hundred percent correct. But there's also types of people, Matt, too. Like, you know, now that we're old and we know a lot of people, there's a lot of serial entrepreneurs who just like to go off and create new things all the time. And I think there's yeah. some people who just kind of want to keep building the thing that they're building. And I, I don't think there's really a right answer to it. Like when I answered before, I was saying like, maybe we should have stayed, we could have grown more. It was really a math answer. Like the math was looking like pretty good, actually. In reality, it felt great to take the chips off the table on, on both of them in a way, right? Like on both of them, there were risks out there unquestionably for us. Well, I, I think one of the reasons why I love you so much, aside from your you know charming personality and, and good looks, is we're similar in that we both like to chase and build and i i think there are you know there are people who are really good at running stuff and you've done both uh and there are people that are really good at chasing stuff and i you know am much more of a sort of serial you know entrepreneur and a yeah. chase a chaser than an, yeah, admi a, an administrator and you're doing that now wearing so many hats you're advising you know, a panoply of incredible companies, very different chapter for you. And I'm one that I sense that you're really enjoying. It's really interesting. It's, it's, so I literally tried to, people kept trying to help me explain myself. Like this, this whole podcast is like, explain yourself a little. And um, I was really unable to for a long time, like post COVID, I was like, God, I'm not making sense when people say, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and doing this. Too. So I see, I see the world this way. 
three phases for myself. Like phase one was integrated marketing communications. And I really enjoyed it. And phase two was, was global digital transformation. And I really enjoyed learning about that. And then obviously like those things go together. And that's why I was learning about those two halves because they, you know, you build things through comms and experience and then e-com comes in and paid social, I mean, sorry, social commerce. The world's going to be all kinds of exciting. But, but in there, the, the third phase is a phase where I, I began to get extremely interested in what many people want to do, which is like advise things and get on boards. And now that I've been doing it, like every single friend I have is like, how are you doing that? Right. I'm like, how are you, how are you getting those things? Right. And I'm like, actually, like, I'm just kind of like suggesting to people I meet, like, it might be good for me to advise you. And I'm kind of like, almost no one's offered me any of the things I'm doing. Most things I'm doing came out of meeting interesting things and then having conversations with the things. But this third phase is, is advising um, things and, and learning more about the interaction between the real money in the world. You know, unfortunately, the world is run by money, really, whether you want to be or not, it just is. And um, that world is controlled by people in private equity and, um, and other places, right? There's other types and sources of money in the world. And understanding how value is created and being able to serve on public boards and being able to be like independent board member or board member. I've had the chance to learn these things and for me, it's like that 90 day rule we started off talking about, like, I don't know how to get trained unless I keep throwing myself into things I barely understand and then get really good at them and then go throw myself again into something else I don't understand enough, then get good at it again. And that repetitive behavior, it's now manifesting itself in a, um, in a deep desire to advise things that are interesting and like a little complicated and on the edge of something about to happen. So like, one of them that you and I both are familiar is um, Zomad, right? So Zomad is the world's leading, most advanced company in nano and micro influencers, right? These are people who at one to 10,000 influencers, 10 to 50, they have much more authenticity. Therefore, they're able to create behavioral change much more effectively, right? Are they the cheapest impression to buy in the whole world? No, no way, shape, or form. Like you can go buy cheap impressions all over the world if you want to. But if you want to make things happen, we're discovering that, that nanos and micros seem to actually really be able to create like real behavioral change, make things happen. So like that one's just like super interesting to get to learn more about and trying to see like, when will the media world figure out that they need to deploy this like slightly more premium thing in the world that's highly more efficacious? The answer I think will be like the next 12 months to 18, we'll begin to see more and more of this movement away from like less authentic influence to more authentic influence, which has a lot of power in the world that's got so many digital gardens being thrown up around itself or fortresses, not gardens, but yeah. But anyway, in there, answering that question, it's been interesting for me. Like I've been through bad experiences, bankruptcies and all kinds of fun things, but it's so great to learn these things. Like it's just been financial restructuring. Wow, there's another skill set. I know how to do that now. You know, like, it wasn't fun, but like I'm almost done with one of them. Like can't wait till it's over and I get a release and I move on. But like, you know, lots of that stuff, it doesn't matter if positive or negative, just like it's really, it's it's been fun this third phase to say um, being used for the ideas and thoughts that I have and experiences I've created and my network that I have of people that I trust and they trust me. And like, that's a very fun place to operate on discovering, but it's also just like, wow, even more stuff to learn now, like so much good stuff to learn now. Like it's just so delicious. Like we both have a need to go and run forward as friends. Like we're both so similar in personalities, but you have a deep need to keep stepping into the new. Like it's the same feeling in each other. You know you have that. You couldn't be running things. You've been, you couldn't build a program that's the biggest B2B program in like New York. Like, how do you do that? Unless it's constantly bringing in new things that are making the world want to go and see what's happening. Like that, 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 that's an inherent thing for you. 
Well, thank you. This is about you, not me. You know, and, and, <laughs> and, and I love I love the narrative that we built here, Aaron, which really goes back to that first gig and training at McCaffrey and McCall. Yeah, and learning, you know, that 90 day rule that goes back to those early days, you know, many, many decades ago, because yeah, yeah. as we've referenced, we're both old. And uh, and <laughs> Sorry, now and now this latest chapter uh, of you serving as sort of an advisor supreme to a lot of companies where you can share the benefit of your experience, keep learning, um, stay active. Every every day is different, which I know you love. It's a great great story, Aaron. IPG treats me like an advisor now. It's the nicest thing. Like it's so nice not to be an employee, but to be an advisor is a lot more fun. I promise. Great, great. Well, I can't tell you how what a joy this was. I'm glad we finally got to do it. Thank you, Matt. It's but I can't tell you how good you are. So you are I've listened to so many of these things. I'm always like, has always turned out good. It is impressive to watch what you just did when you brought that whole thing together and I feel manipulated in a good kind of way. Thank you. <laughs> that was genius. I mean that was well we done. Aim well to done please. All right, talk to you soon, buddy. <laughs> Cheers, buddy. Bye.